Anyone who's ever done anything worth doing has dreamed big, failed mightily, and mostly started from humble beginnings. This is a podcast about such people. The most fascinating podcast in the world is fascinating because of the stories of the human beings. Hello, it's Pat DeSerbo. Most fascinating podcast in the world has nothing to do with me, but the people that come on the show. And today we have Mark Allen, one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Mark is a native Californian, and as many listeners will know, a six-time world champion, full-distance Ironman uh, champion. <clears throat> Only one other person has done that. And uh, if Mark didn't take a year off for the birth of his child, I'm guessing he would have been a seven-time champion. Just my opinion. Um, Mark is also the first Olympic distance world champion in 1989 and is the proud owner of a 21-race winning streak at the international level, which is, uh, I believe, unrivaled. Um, Mark was... In fact, voted in 2012 by ESPN, the greatest endurance athlete of all time. Mark is a very entertaining speaker, and he does motivational speaking for uh, large groups, corporations. He, I've seen many of his talks in person and listened to a bunch of them on YouTube and online. Mark is uh, an Ironman brand ambassador. and. Uh, is also actively involved in coaching on an app called TriDot. Welcome, Mark. Wow, that's a long list of uh, accomplishments, accolades, things associated with me. I guess now that I'm 65, um, I, you got to accumulate a certain amount of stuff over your lifetime, right? And hopefully, hopefully most of it is good. It's all good. And I shortened it, actually. The list was way <laughs> longer than that. Um, <clears throat> But um, as you know, I'm in the habit of asking people um, their earliest memories in their lives. Like when you were a little kid, what, what do you remember from very early in life? That's a great question. Actually, the first memory that I, that I have of anything, and I don't know if anybody other than my family knows this, but um, my mom gave birth to both me and my first brother at home. We lived in, we, we were in Glendale, California, living in a, basically a converted garage. We had, we had no money at the time. Uh, my dad would be going to medical school about a year from then. And I woke up one morning and there was all this commotion going on in the living room. And here was this baby. And it was my brother. I was three years old. And <laughs> excuse me, just kind of a wild memory. Probably not a lot of people have a memory of their sibling being born at home, but I certainly do. But as far as like me personally, you know, growing <laughs> up, I, I was, I was kind of a, I was a, a little bit of a shrimp. Like I was always the small kid in the group and I didn't have any kind of real athletic ability. I certainly enjoyed doing uh, sport stuff, as long as it was more like movement. I didn't, I, I was very, I didn't have the patience for football. I didn't have the, the skill for basketball. I didn't have the, the eye hand coordination for baseball, but when it came to like, you know, 
flag football, everybody's running or soccer, you know, I love that kind of stuff. And I loved sort of like the adventure stuff of just going for little bike rides around the neighborhood or whatever it was. But, um, you know, if, if I was to categorize myself and I'm sort of sticking to sport at the moment, but as I, if I would categorize myself athletically when I was young, like, <clears throat> you know, when you, everybody would be picking teams and sides and you'd have the captains and they'd pick one person and the other one would pick and they go back and forth. I was either last or second to last to always be picked because nobody wanted me on the team because I was not an asset to anybody when it came to sport. In 1968, at the age of 10, I, um, I was watching the Mexico City Olympics and it was the first Olympics that I'd seen, <coughs> excuse me, because it was really the only the first time we really had television in the house. And uh, I was just mesmerized by the Olympic swimmers because, and the, the piece that was so mesmerizing were the distance swimmers. You know, the women were going 800 meters, the men 1500. This was back in the days when people didn't acknowledge that women could actually go as far as men in distance stuff. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, I, I loved in the summers going to uh, our, our local pool and just splashing around. But for me to swim 25 yards across a pool at age 10, that was like a near-death experience, right? Like I, the lifeguard made me do it once because I was going off the diving board and he didn't think I was a good enough swimmer to be in the deep end. And he had me swim across the pool and I got to the other end after barely making it. He said, okay, you can go back to the diving end. And I was so exhausted that I, I hung there for a while. I got out of the pool and I went home. I mean, that's what my athletic you know, prowess was at the time. So anyway, I saw these Olympic swimmers and I'm like, how can they just keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth? And a couple months after that, there was an ad in our local newspaper saying that the local swim team in the town where I lived at the time, uh, I grew up in, in Palo Alto before it was Silicon Valley and you can actually afford to live there. And um, <clears throat> there was an ad for the, the swim team and they were having tryouts. My mom said, why don't you go? You know, just, you love the water. You, you love those Olympic swimmers. And I thought, I can't, I can't swim. I can't go across the pool. Anyway, she convinced me. I went and I actually swam like a hundred, four laps without stopping. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And that, that actually led to um, 12 years of, of competitive swimming. But again, you know, I, I didn't show any kind of like innate talent or natural ability. Like my swimming level at its peak was mediocre at best. I was never a champion of anything. I was, I was never setting records. I didn't, I was not nowhere close to even being fast enough to qualify for Olympic trials, forget going to the Olympics. Um, but all of those years of swimming were my results were less than um, shiny and things that people would talk about. I got so much fulfillment out of it. And I, I think that was a lesson that without knowing it served me so well in my life. Like I, you know, if I could just get like a 10th or two second, two tenths of a second faster in hunter back or 50 free or whatever, that was fulfilling. It wasn't going to get me accolades. It wasn't going to make news. 
you know, nobody was going to pat me on the back for it, but there was this sense of personal fulfillment. Like I have gone from one level to another level in my life and that is good. And I'm giving the best effort that I can. And, you know, so many people focus on being the absolute best at what we do, like maybe being better than everybody else, but there's only one person that's going to win a race or be the top of the podium or be the the top salesperson in their company. And so does that mean that everybody else behind them is losers? No, I don't think so. So where does the where does the satisfaction and fulfillment come from? You know, for me it came from just seeing how can I how can I get myself a little bit better today than I was yesterday? How can I end the day a little bit better than I started it? Even if I'm having a lousy day, it can still be a success. It can still be fulfilling. Like, how can I just turn this around a little bit so that I get a little bit more out of myself and I put a little bit more in place than it looked like I could have a minute ago or five minutes ago or an hour ago? And so, the, you know, those are those are simple things that came out of sort of a unstellar beginning as far as athletics and sort of position in life. Were you a good student in school? Do you remember like grade school, high school, stuff like that? I was pretty good in school. Yeah. Um, you know, I was kind of kid that wanted to try to get A's and everything. Like, why not? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> that's a good goal. Why not try to get all A's? Of course, I never did, but it was a good goal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I worked, I worked hard to a point. Like getting the most out of my schoolwork was kind of based on partly the interest that I had in it. Like if there was a class that just, it didn't have that much meaning to me, you know, I didn't, I didn't give it the same sort of force that I did with classes where I really resonated. Like I was, I was good at math, let's say. I wasn't that good at like government stuff and history. It didn't, it didn't hold the same meaning for me. It was, you know, math was like this little intriguing thing. Like, how do these numbers fit together? How do you make one, one thing transform into another with a formula? Anyway, so, <clears throat> and I think that also, that, that was also something that was actually a lesson in my life. Like, not everything that I do is going to have the same meaning. And that, best to put my efforts into the things that, that have meaning and interest for me. Because the other stuff is just like pulling teeth. You know, motivation, if you have to create it, it's not sustainable. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you, you know, if, if there's something that has a calling for you, it will, it will draw you toward it. If you don't have the same, if you don't have a calling for something, you might be putting a lot of energy into it, but you're going to have to sort of like dredge up the motivation each day to engage over and over and over. And this isn't saying that the things that have a calling for you um, don't have challenge and don't have days where you've got to go, oh boy, can I do this again? You know, I've been doing this over and over and over and I don't seem like I'm getting anywhere with it. That's mm -hmm. okay. But there's a big difference between something that's a calling for you and something that you're you're just doing because somebody else says you need to be doing this. And um, so I really tried to, I've always tried to kind of look at 
what are the things, what are the things that really spark me? What are the things that really call me? E even if I have no idea where, where it's going to go. And, and so, you know, one of the classic examples of that was how I, how I got involved with Ironman. I was, mm -hmm. it was in, in 1982, I was 24 years old. I had been out of college for two years. I had stopped swimming because back then, in my opinion, you know, at the level that I was at there, there was no future for a swimmer. If you're not mm. the best in the world after you, after you finish college. And so, um, I kind of thought that I'd hit my peak of athletic capabilities at 22 and it was all going to be downhill after that. But 1982, I was watching wide world of sports one Saturday afternoon, you know, back in the days when the entire nation would stop to see what Jim McKay had to say about some incredible sporting event. And th there was this thing called the Ironman. And, uh, I had no, I'd never heard of the Ironman. I didn't know what a triathlon was. Um, and he's, you know, he's recounting the distances. This is a 2.4 mile swim off the coast of Kona in the tropics in Hawaii. It's a 112 mile bike ride through desolate lava with incredible winds. And then you finish off with a marathon, 26.2 miles of running in the tropics. And I'm thinking this has to take, I don't know, two, three days. And then of course he said, you start at seven, you've got to finish by midnight, 17 hours later. And I thought, this is friggin' nuts. How can, how can a human body do that? You know, it was, mm. it was just like mind blowing. Like, how can somebody do that? But I watched these seemingly, you know, ordinary people crossing that extraordinary finish line on the, on the wide world of sports broadcast. Mm. And, um, about two weeks later, it was, I could just feel that calling, like, I have to go there and just see if I can be one of those finishers. And it was completely counterintuitive to anything that logically I should be doing at the time, because I'd been out of college for two years. I had this degree. I was searching for what is my profession going to be? I hadn't locked into anything and to take And So this was in February. I was going to do the next Ironman was in October. And to, so to take eight or 10 months, and put all of this time into this sort of recreational activity, distract me from getting my shit together and getting going with my career was like, hello, or how stupid can you be? Right. But mm. I had this calling and I go, I just have to go there and do that. And of course, you know, my entire life changed by doing that, by following that calling. So, Back then, could you just go do Kona? Did you yeah, not have to qualify? There, there was there weren't <laughs> enough crazy people who wanted to do it yet. You know, like <laughs> I, I think the first year I did it, there were around a thousand people in the race. So, you know, nowadays there's there's countless numbers of Ironman events around the world where you have to do really well in your age group to then get a qualifying slot for the 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 twenty five hundred slots that they'll have in the world championship back then to get into the race you called up the ironman office they sent you the application you sent it back filled out with a check and a headshot and you were in couldn't be couldn't have been much easier that's crazy so you so you pack your bags you well before you pack your bags you start training 
February of 1982, or was that 1983 yeah, at that 82. point? Okay. So you start training, presumably? Well, yeah, I started training, and in 1982, um, the sport was was literally four years old. There mm -hmm. were no coaches. There was nothing written in anywhere about how to train for a triathlon. There was, there was no Google. There was, there was, there were no resources. And so I, I looked at, I, I kind I sort of, I knew what to do for swimming. You know, that was my background. I had a good friend who was a cyclist uh, and I, and I read, you know, runner's world magazines and how to train for marathons and stuff like that. And so I, tr I tried to look at all of sort of this single sport advice on how to get ready for these distances that I was going to be doing. And I, it, it took very little time to realize that if I did everything that each one of these individual sports wanted me to do to get ready for that discipline, I would kill myself. It was too much. And, and so then I kind of realized that um, triathlon is one sport with three aspects to it. And so I had to, I had to sort of modify things and integrate the, the best sort of general concepts from each of those sports into my, into my preparation. And I, I found a couple of people, I was living in San Diego. I found a couple of people who were also training for the Ironman that year and, and just kind of started following what they were doing and training with them. And, uh, it, it really was a, a, you know, trial and error kind of a thing to see what worked and what didn't and hopefully stick it out and not make too many big mistakes. So October rolls around. You fly to Hawaii. What happened then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I flew to Hawaii. I was, um, you know, I had been to the Big Island many times before that as, as a child on vacation with my family. Mm -hmm. I loved the island, but I had never looked at it from the perspective of what would it be like to do an Ironman on this island, obviously. And so as we're flying into Kona, you know, you, you come Did in. Did you go alone, along. by the way? I, I actually the was there with two other people from San Diego who were going to be competing in the race. So I sort of had like a little... I had a little mutual support and, and both of them mm -hmm. had actually done the race the year before. So they had, they had experience and I was the new guy on the block. And so I was just kind of like tagging along and trying not to stumble over my own feet. But we you know, you fly in and you can see the, the entire bike course on this desolate ribbon of black lava that, that, that spans the whole West side of the big Island of Hawaii. And I'm looking down and I'm thinking, Oh my God, I've got to ride that entire distance all the way out and then all the way back. And literally my, my palms started sweating. Mm. I'm like, what did I get myself into? You know? And so, um, race morning was, it, it was absolutely nerve wracking. Like I, you know, you, you jump in Kailua Bay and, and the starting cannon is going to be at seven. So you, you get in, you know, a few minutes early and kind of warm up and we're just floating there and, we're all lined up and there's a thousand of us and, and it, it was the, the most uh, unknown feeling I've ever had in my life. Like I have no idea how this is going to turn out mm. and that's intimidating. You know, we, we sort of like to have at least a certain sense of uh, confidence or 
that we have a, a little bit of control over this situation. I had no idea what I was even getting into. It was terrifying. So the gun goes off. Yeah, so the gun goes off. And um, right away, I was, I, I just started out. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a long line of buoys that marks the shortest distance between the start and a, a boat uh, that's anchored at the halfway point of the swim. And so, of course, everybody wants to try to get right next to that line of buoys because that's going to be the shortest distance. And so all of a sudden, all thousand of us are jammed up against those buoys. We're um, getting smashed and hit, hit and jabbed and poked and pushed under the water by, by these other athletes. And I thought, I'm going to die in the opening moments of this race. And, you know, I, I absolutely panicked. And I'm super comfortable in the ocean. You know, I've surfed for years and the ocean is my friend. And I thought I was going to get drowned out there. And so, you know, you have to come up with a solution, right? And my solution was sprint, get away from everybody. You know, like, how smart is that? Probably not too smart. Sprinting mm. the opening moments of a race that can take up to 17 hours, not the best mm. pacing. And as you know, mm. we have to pace our effort over the course of our journey that we're on. You know, if you use up all your matches in the beginning, you fall apart and, and you might even have to quit afterwards, you know, shortly after that. So anyway, but it was the only thing I could, you know, I was on survival mode. And finally, I was able to break away from the main pack of, of, of athletes. And I, I got on the feet of this guy that seemed to be cutting a generally okay pace through the water. And so I, I got on his feet and we made the turn at the turnaround and um, we're heading back. And I, I kind of was like, I wonder where the leaders are. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't in a hurry, you know, I'm just like there to finish this dang thing. And uh, I stopped and tried to water for a sec. And the only guy I could see was this guy right in front of me. And I thought, man, those, those top guys are so good. They are so far ahead. I can't even see them. And so, you know, I got back on that guy's feet and we, we came out of the water. And as I came out of the water, somebody yelled out, Mark Allen, number two. And I looked down mm -hmm. and my number on my bib was not number two. And all of a sudden I realized that was a position that I was in in the race. <laughs> the Ironman World Championship. I'm on the feet of the leader of the race. In 1982, the best Ironman distance triathlete in, in the world was a, a guy named Dave Scott. And mm. uh, he, was, he was one of those guys. He'd won the race once prior to this, this one, and he was coming back hoping to win his second, second title that year. And he's one of those guys that does everything absolutely perfectly with his training, with his nutrition. Like, if you want to know what commitment looks like, you just look at what Dave does to get ready for that race. And so anyway, um, I come out of the water, I, I'm told that I'm in second place and I ran up, I thought, I wonder, I wonder who that guy is that I'm following. And I ran up and I looked over and it was friggin' Dave Scott, the best guy in the world. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, hallelujah, there is a God. You know what I mean? Like, wow, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Wide world of sports, Jim McKay, <laughs> Mark Allen here, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm with the best guy in the world. And I'm like, holy crap. And so throwing my cycling clothes, we headed out for 112 miles of biking. Halfway through the bike ride, I was still with Dave. We, we made the turn at this little town called Hobby at the farthest point on the bike course. 
we headed back and I, I could see that we were about a five, we had a five minute lead on, on the chase group. And, um, I'm like ecstatic, you know, I'm like a kid in a candy shop. Like, how is this happening to me? And so, and I had never you talked have no to idea that you were this good. I had no idea. Like, uh, come on, you know, I'm, I still had that, that swimmer mentality, like you're mediocre at best and you just mm. do your own race because there's going to be, you know, 50% of the people here are probably going to beat you, that kind of a thing. Mm. But mm. I'm clearly in a different position and clearly something was different for me in this sport than it was in, in swimming. And, you know, now I can look back and realize that genetically I'm not put together to be a great swimmer. You know, if you look at the best swimmers in the world, they have this massive wingspan. Their their natural shoulder flexibility is beyond anything that I will ever have, no matter how hard I work at it. Their feet are like flippers. Their knees bend backwards. I mean, they're just different. And they're like, you know, if you look at the the starting blocks, like at the Olympic finals, they're all like six four, six five, six six. They're huge. I'm just under six feet. So anyway, but my mm. levers are put together to be pretty efficient cycling and running. And so I had this huge experiential and physical base from swimming and a cardio cardio you know a cardiac system that was really developed because of 12 years of of really you know training hour after hour after hour so when I got in the sport of triathlon my levers along with my cardiovascular fitness from all those years of training along with my knowledge of how to just train consistently over and over and over and my my ability to just train day in and day out, um, it really served me well. It was like this magic combination, this co this coming together, a converging of universes of experience from this base from swimming, natural ability uh, for cycling and running, and it, and this sport that was new called triathlon. And so you know that's <clears throat> that's kind of how it goes, right? I mean, some things that really call us in our life, we're going to be really mediocre at, no matter how much we work at it, but that's okay if it's fulfilling like swimming was for me. And then there's other things that we do that we're going to have a calling for that we do that we put a lot of energy into that also match with some of our just natural abilities and capabilities and experiences. And with that, you can really, really go pretty far. And re regardless of where you are on that spectrum, um, just because you're good at something doesn't mean that it'll, it will fulfill you. And so ultimately, no matter what it is, whether, you know, you're in the 50th percentile, the bottom third, the top 1%, there has to be a level of fulfillment that comes from the experience and through the experience and, and, and a sense of what I'm doing is just setting up some kind of good energy in the world on some level. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, so anyway, I was in the race in that moment, I, I had never spoken to Dave before. And so I figured, okay, perfect time to have a conversation with a champ. And so I, I pulled up next to him and I, I'm cycling along and I go, Hey Dave, when we're done with the bike, you want to go for a run? And he, he, he looks over at me and he goes, who are you? You know, like idiot. <laughs> and I said, well, Mark Allen. And he goes, Oh, I think I heard your name. And he, clicked his bike into a big gear and he took off. And uh, so I thought, well, all right, well, 
pretty short conversation with a champ. I clicked my bike into a big gear and I heard this massive clanking and grinding sound. And I looked down and the derailleur, the transmission of my bike had snapped off and was broken off, uh, had broken off and was dragging on the ground. Mm. And so my Ironman that year, my first year was done just past the halfway point of the bike ride. So I didn't even achieve that, that dream of crossing the finish line. Mm -hmm. Um, but the bigger dream was born on that day because I had been with the best guy in the world for several hours of racing. Mm. And so it really came to me after I got over the disappointment of not even finishing, like, you know what, maybe if I just take my time, develop my skills, develop my experience someday, I can be the best in the world at this. Mm. And, you know, so that was a, that was a window and a spark, a window of opportunity of seeing myself in a very different light than I had ever thought I could be in. You know, like I said, growing up, I was last or second to last to be picked for the softball team, right? So I went from the bottom of the barrel, never seeing myself as somebody who could be really good at something to suddenly thinking, maybe I can go way beyond any self image that I had of myself mm-hmm. because the past had no, no, uh, no reinforcement that I could be. But in this moment, there was that spark, that window opened up. So were your friends like on the flight home, these two people that you came with, were they surprised at how well you did? Well, uh, I think, I think they were less surprised than me because I had done training with both of them and they both, they both saw like, wow, this guy has it. And, and, but, but I didn't even know what it looked like if you had it because mm-hmm. I had no experience at it. And so, um, I, I think they were, they, I think they actually saw the potential in me before I, way before I did. Hmm. Yeah. You know how so, it is, other people see you di- uh, probably more clearly than you do yourself. Mm-hmm. And isn't, isn't that why we have friends and, and close advisors mm-hmm. so that they can give us that insight into us that maybe we don't see, yeah. whether it's in a potential that we're afraid to embrace, or maybe telling us some truths about ourselves, about actions or ways of being that are holding us back from being our best version of ourselves. No doubt. Takes two to see one. Yeah, absolutely. I can see you and you can see me, but I can't see me and you can't see you. <laughs> We're not objective. Right? Yeah. Um. So you had that year and then year two, what happened year two? The second year I, I came back and I was able to finish the race. Um, I finished in third place. I raced it what felt like to be kind of conservatively, you know, I just, I just wanted to make it through the entire distance to see what it took to cross that finish line. And to, and to do that and finish in third, I was like, wow, pretty good. The year after that, I, I came back and I finished in fifth. Uh, so it, I dropped down two places, but I was actually closer to the champ, the leader on that day, the guy who won, which was Dave Scott. 
And so I was still improving. And then the following year, I finished in second place. And so uh, as I was getting ready for what would be my fifth Ironman, um, I thought, all right, there's only one spot left. And so in 1987, as I was planning out my season's training, I thought, what am I going to do that's going to get me more fit and ready than anybody else in this in this sport, including Dave Scott, the best guy at it. And I thought, I'm just going to out train him. I'm just going to do more swimming, cycling, running than everybody. And I mean, you know how that sort of can pan out. Like, you you know, we all know people that are always busy, but busy is not effective necessarily. necessarily. <clears throat> and so even though I was doing a lot of training, I didn't really know if it was like the right training or not. I just knew that I was, I was stacking up miles in my logbook. And by the time I got to Kona, I had about 15,000 miles of swimming, cycling, and running that I had done in preparation. And I knew that nobody, including Dave Scott, had done that much training. And so it gave me this sense of confidence. But again, being busy and being effective, are they can, they're not necessarily the same world. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Dave, Dave Scott and I actually, uh, we came off the bike pretty close to each other that year. And shortly after the start of the run, we, we, we kind of matched up and, and we moved into first place, passing the last person who had been ahead of us around the half marathon point. And at that moment, I thought, okay, I feel, I feel great. There's only 13 miles left to run and I want to, I want to break him. I want to win this dang thing. And so I upped my pace pretty close to six minute mile, which was faster than I'd ever run there. And uh, he began to fall back, which of course, you know, that late in the race, you don't want to give up an inch or a second because that, that might be a gap that you don't ever make back. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I kept pulling away. And with 10 miles to go, I was told that Dave Scott was five minutes behind me. And I did the math. I'm like, He's not going to catch me because he's losing time, but he's got to make up 30 seconds a mile every single mile of these closing 10 if he's going to catch me at the finish line. And I knew there was no way he could do that. And so I, I started to sort of put together the acceptance speech that I was going to give the following night at the awards ceremony. But, um, you know, a race is never over until you cross the finish line. And mm. I, I, I didn't realize how potent that thought was until this year. About a mile later, my energy started to dip, and so I, I took a little more time in the next aid station. I took in some calories. I took in fluids. It had no effect. The aid station after that, I actually walked through it to really get in even more nutrition, and that still had no effect. My stomach had stopped absorbing the calories that I was putting in, and I was running out of gas. And in that moment, I knew, like, I'm not going to win this because I'm going to have to start. I'm at some point going to be forced to walk. I'm running out of gas. My body doesn't have the energy to sustain a running pace. And I guarantee you, nobody wins the Ironman walking. Hmm. You got to run the dang thing. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I walked and I jogged and I walked and I jogged. And eventually around mile 22 or 23, Dave Scott passed me. And at that point, you know, the, the question was in my mind, like, what do I do now? What's this worth? You know, like I came here to win. I'm not winning. 
Do I drop out? Do I just sort of walk the rest of the way? Do I kind of give up? And, um, you know, sometimes in, even in the most impossible moments, there's something that might have meaning for us to give, keep giving everything we have. And I thought, you know what? I want to get to that finish line. And when I cross the finish line, I want to feel like I gave 100% of what I had to give in this moment where I feel like my body's actually working at maybe 20% of its peak potential. Mm. And so when I walked, I walked as fast as I could. And then eventually some energy would get in and I'd be able to jog for a little bit. And I jogged as fast as I can until that ran out. And then I'd have to walk again. And so in those, those closing miles of the marathon, even though I was walking and jogging, I gave a hundred percent of what I had to give. And, um, I crossed the line and I knew I could hold my head high. Like, even though I didn't win, I gave the best effort I had on that day. And that's all we can ask of ourselves. And later in the years that would come, that skill of being able to give 100% of what I had to give, no matter what percent of my peak potential I was working at, served me well. Because in the years that I won, in all six of the Ironmans where I crossed the finish line in first, there were many moments where I was not feeling 100%. There were moments when I thought, if that lesser part of myself takes over, I'm going to give up because I just didn't feel good. But because of that lesson learned in that very difficult moment, I moved through those periods pretty easily. Like I just like, hey, you're still at 70%, give 100% of this 70% situation. And then for sure, my energy would come back up and I'd be back at 100%. And then I went on and won, right? And um, I think that's a that's such a valuable thing to maybe have in, in the back of people's minds, like, no journey is going to be perfect in the sense like there's there's never going to be a journey start to finish where you feel great all the way where you can see your dream happening all the way but so what so what you know get the most out of what you can in this moment and the one after that and the one after that you know i i'm i continue today to ask myself when i'm kind of in a maybe a negative space or a space where i doubt myself or an unclear spot i go are you given the best you you have of yourself right now? I don't think so. And so what can I do to give a better part of myself in this moment where I'm struggling? And that it always shifts it. It always changes things. And it's not like we need to, to plow through relentlessly no matter what. Like, you know, there are times or periods where you need to like step back and regroup for a minute, right? Step back and gain clarity. Like in that moment in, in the race with Dave Scott in 1987, I had to step back and ask myself, why does this have meaning? What's my purpose now? Why what am I keeping What place did you born? get that year? Uh, I finished year. in, in, I finished in uh, second place, hmm. which, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, second place, that's not bad, you know? And I'm hmm. like, yeah, I know it's not bad, but I wanted to win. Wow, wow, wow. I was whining, you know? <laughs> I mean, emotionally, it was it was it was it was so hard to pick up the pieces after that because mm -hmm. I did so much work. It wasn't like I was a slacker and went in sort of delusional, like, oh, I think I've done some training. You know, I I did a ton of it, but obviously, it wasn't the right stuff. It wasn't the right kind of training that I needed to to pull off a victory there. And and clearly, Dave Scott, who was training less, 
was doing the right stuff because he was still winning. That was that ended up uh, in 1987 being his sixth Ironman title himself. And um, so, you know, picking up the mm-hmm. pieces after disappointment can be one of the biggest challenges we all have. And sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes the, you know, the dreams that we have, we're never going to accomplish them because it's just not in the cards for whatever reason. And so, you know, am I going to keep beating my head against the triathlon Ironman wall and go back a hundred times and never win and be disappointed each time? Or maybe I need to go back with a different purpose. You know, the following year I came back and I, I didn't change anything about my training, my preparation, and I finished in fifth farther out of the lead than any of the other times that I finished there. And that was when I was at a real crossroads. Six times I'd been there at the Ironman World Championship. Six times I'd had races that fell short of being first. Some of them were okay races. Some of them were completely devastating like that one in 87. And, um, and you know, my family and friends, those advisors that I rely on, they're like, dude, you're not cut out for that race. Go to the places you can win. Go to the places you've shown that you can beat Dave Scott and everybody else. There's something about that race that's just not for you. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe it's the length of the race. We don't know what it is, but why do you want to keep going back? And I was, you know, I was seriously listening to this feedback. And then I thought, you know, my purpose has been in these last few years to try to win. There's only one spot at the top of that podium. I haven't had my best race yet. Maybe my best race isn't good enough to be the champion, but I need to go back and have my best race. Isn't that all we can ask of ourselves, to have our best race? And so in in 1989, as I was preparing for what would be my seventh Ironman, I thought, let me just get myself in the best shape I can. Let me be smart about my training. Stop thinking about Dave Scott every second during your workouts. Focus on your best effort. Focus on your best recovery from your efforts. And just relax. You know, take a chill pill once in a while. And so that's what I did. And when I when I lined up on the start line that year, I just had this sense of peace and calm that I'd never had before when I went to the army. You know, I, I was floating in Kailua Bay. I was, I, w- I was literally floating right next to Dave Scott. And I saw the sunrise come up over the volcano for the first time ever on race morning. And I saw how blue and beautiful the ocean was. And I saw these fish below us. And it's like, I was noticing all of these incredible things of beauty that had been going on around me for almost seven years. And I'd never noticed because I was too obsessed with trying to win. And I was missing just this simple beauty of the environment that I was lucky enough to be racing in. And so it, it changed the whole experience from being this intimidating, monstrous challenge to really feeling like pretty grateful to even be able to be there in that place, challenging myself with that amazing race. And the whole day unfolded very differently. Dave, you know, I said, Dave Scott knows how to race this thing. I'm not going to try and pull away. I'm going to see if I can actually just 
stay with him and learn from him. He's the best. Let's see how he paces it, not how I think it should be paced. And every Mm -hmm. time I tried to do that, I blew up, right? You know, it's like, I've got my script, but my script does not have a good ending. His script has an amazing ending every single Mm -hmm. time. And so I just stayed right behind him on the swim. I stayed right behind him on the bike. We ran side by side on that marathon, mile after mile after mile after mile after mile. And again, at about around the halfway point, the race really started to shift. We were we were pulling away from everybody else. Clearly, one of us was going to win it. We were on a pace that was going to shatter his his world's record for that course. And uh, but this year, he was he was extra strong and he started to surge and to pull away. And I was really starting to just hang on by the skin of my teeth. And finally it got so hard to stay with him that, you know, the atomic bomb went off in my brain with all the chatter that doesn't help you out. Like I'm sure you've had those moments where it gets so difficult and you're like, ah, I can't do it. I shouldn't have done this. I should have stayed in bed today. I should have had a different you know, different profession. I didn't do the right work, you know, like, wow, wow, wow. You're mm-hmm. whine, whine, whine. Whining does not, is not a strategy. Whining does, does not give you the strength to keep going. Whining does not help you come up with the solutions that are going to get you out of that mess. It's, you know, whining does not help you hold on. It loosens. So what the, happened? It loosens. Well, finally it got <laughs> so hard to stay with him that my whining couldn't even keep, couldn't even be, <laughs> Couldn't even keep going. And my mind just went quiet because it took every ounce of energy just to stay with him step for step for step. And in the moment of silence, I recalled a, an ad that I'd seen in a magazine two days before. And it was a, an ad for a workshop that was going to be taking place in Mexico, teaching about a very traditional way of life from one of the indigenous peoples in that area, the Weichel people. And um, I had no idea what their way of life was. I, the thing that caught my attention were the, the, the photos of, the, of two medicine men, shamans, who were going to be leading that one workshop. One was a 110-year-old Weichel shaman, Don Jose, and the other was his adopted grandson, Brant Secunda. And they both had a look on their face that was just very peaceful, but yet very powerful. And as an athlete, and and really in everything in life, that's kind of what we're trying to, that's the sweet spot, isn't it? When we have a sense of peace, calm, self-confidence, trust, but at the same time, we, we sense potential and strength and capability of what we can do if we just stick with it. And in that moment where my, my mind went quiet, Don Jose's image came back to me and I went from whining crying out there how hard it was and how I didn't think I could keep going and Dave was going to win and I, you know, wow, 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 to all of a sudden my mind goes quiet. There's Don Jose and that that sense of peace and power just washed over me. And I just had this calm in the midst of the most physically intense moment that I had ever experienced on the race course. And everything loosened up and everything just started to move. And all of a sudden, it was just a little bit easier to stay with Dave. And then it got even easier. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. 
I can win this. Mm. I can truly win this. I have what it takes to win the biggest accolade in the sport of triathlon, the Ironman World Championship. But I have to finish it out. I've still got 13 miles of pain and discomfort and heat and humidity and sun and the toughest competitor this race has ever seen that I have to deal with. But I think I can do it. And so we went mile after mile after mile. And finally, at about mile 24 and a half, after racing each other side by side for eight hours, there was a, a one long uphill before we then dropped down into the town of Kona and went to the finish line. And, at, and both of us knew that that long uphill was where the race was going to break apart. And both of us were planning on pulling away from the other one at that moment. At the bottom of the hill, though, was an aid station. And the logic as an athlete at that late stage of the race is you get one last glass of Coke or Gatorade or sport drink or whatever you're going to get so that you get just a little bit more gas in the system so that then you can close out that, that final mile and a half without falling apart. Dave got to the aid station. He shoved himself in front of me. He grabbed a glass of whatever he was going to drink. And I came in right behind him to grab my glass of whatever I was going to get. And just as I went to grab it, it's like the island just said, go. And I pulled my hand back. Very counterintuitive. It's a risk. I might run out of gas because I'm not getting that last little bit in the tank. And I just started sprinting as best as you can sprint at the end of an Ironman. Not very impressive. And I, in, in the few seconds it took Dave to reach over, grab his glass, and look back, I'd open up a gap. And you could see the impact that it had on him in the footage, all of a sudden he's in complete shock because I am pulling away in the part of the race that historically was his hallmark. He was always the best toward the end of the race. And you can see his shoulders come up, he starts to rock. And all of a sudden, you know, he's having to deal with a fear with something that's not going right. And I continued to pull away and put more and more time, more and more time, went on to win. Dave Scott had his best Ironman ever that day. He broke his previous world's record by almost 18 minutes. I did my best time at that point in my career by nearly 30. And the difference in our times at the end was a mere 58 seconds. It's a very small difference on a very, very long day. That's huge. And that was your seventh attempt? That was Ironman number seven. You know, six, six years of devoting an, an entire year to achieving a dream, achieving a, a goal, falling short, and then coming back another year with a reason to give that much effort again and again and again and again. It's fascinating. And then you won four more in a row. The next four years, right? And then yes. you took a year off when Mats was born. And then you came back for, I love to hear about your last win. I just, I find it, they're all interesting, but the last one to me is the most interesting. Can you talk <laughs> about that? Yeah, my, my final Ironman was in 1995. The previous year, I, I did take off from Ironman racing because we had the birth of 
our son that year, I knew that being a father would be an adjustment. And I, I really wanted to be able to have more time to spend being a father, being with, with our newborn. I, I was also burned out. And I knew that no matter how much desire I had to go back, that physically my body probably couldn't take the training that I needed to be ready to try and get another victory. And uh, so I, I just, I, I knew that I needed to honor that. And, and sometimes that's the way it goes. You know, we have maybe goals or, or things that are important, but we need to push them out a little bit of time because we just can't do it right now for whatever reason. Mm. And that's okay. You know? And so then in 1995, I was ready to come back for what I knew would be my final Ironman. I had five victories. You know, one of the intriguing things of reasons to come back was that, um, Dave Scott during his career had won six. And so if I could come back and win another one, that would tie the record that represented the best in our sport. But the main reason I was coming back is that I felt like I had just a little bit more that I could give at the race to do something that maybe I had never done before. And that was really, that was super intriguing to me. Like I always felt like if I can get just a little bit better, there's a reason to come back. But the problem was that I was 37 years old, which, you know, on the big scale of things is not old, but in the endurance sports with a number of years that I'd raced already, I was ancient. I was like a, a fossil. And, you know, when all the guys that I would be racing against that were 10, 15 years younger than me heard that I was coming back, <clears throat> they were like, come on, we're going to chew you up and spit you out all over that lava, you know, like, because they knew that at 37, I could no longer do the, the, the same kind of training that I had done earlier in my career. I just wouldn't recover. Mm -hmm. I would burn myself out. And so I was going to have to come up with other ways to bring more to my performance. And, and I knew that one of the biggest aspects of that race, yes, you have to do the physical training, but also you have to deal with yourself. You have to deal with your mind. You have to deal with the negative thoughts that inevitably are going to come in no matter how prepared you are. And I had seen in the past that, you know, sometimes you get in that little bit of a negative space and it can take you five, 10 minutes to sort of let it go and shift it around and get back into a place where you're just fully engaged and you you stop the thinking and you, you just, you just give the effort that, that you have. That's the best in that moment. And the moment after that, and the moment after that. And I thought, you know, those young guys are not working on that. And I have been working on that my entire career. So that's going to be one of the things that I work, I work on heavily because if I can, if I can make that shift in three seconds or five seconds or 10 seconds, I've wasted very little time being out of a 100% engaged space where I'm giving everything that I have to give those other guys, they get in that negative space, five minutes, 10 minutes before they finally settle back down and get into it, get into the rhythm, get into the flow. And, you know, that's time wasted. That's energy wasted. And so um, I cut back on my training. I knew that I had certain key days that were un not compromisable. I had to be ready for them. But overall, I cut way back on the total volume that I did. I cut way back on some of the, the higher intensity training that I did because I knew that I had to recover. And everything looked like it was going in the right direction. And, um, you know, I, 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 I looked at everything like I, I didn't leave any stone unturned. I looked at all the different options of ways to save time. I found a new 
lacing system that I could put on my running shoes that would save me 10 seconds and transition from bike to run. And it's like, why not? It's free time. 10 seconds may not win me the race. Maybe it will, but it's free. Why not? I, um, I, I, I found a, a, a new, um, I found a new material uh, that had less drag in the water than our skin. It was the first year that they, we, they started using those, those skin suits. Like you saw the Olympic swimmers wear, where they were like blowing away world records with them. And so I called up Nike, my sponsor at the time. And I said, Hey, can you make me a full body suit out of this stuff? It's got to cover my torso and it'll probably save me, I don't know, 40, 45 seconds in the swim in Kona. That'll be huge. And they said, sure, we'll get that right out to you. Well, Right out to me didn't happen. They didn't arrive until two days before the race. And I, I opened the, the, the package and I looked and I'm holding this thing up. And it's like, yeah, it's going to cover my torso. But it looks like it was it was dragged out of my wife's side of the closet. Like totally not the kind of cut that I was like so psyched to be wearing in a world championship. But anyway, it's like I'm willing to risk, risk embarrassment if it will help me win the race. Race day came. I was pretty relaxed. I knew this would be my final Ironman, which actually freed me up to give maybe more than I ever had before because I knew there were there were no more tomorrows. And so um, I actually came out of the water ahead of guys that I had never been ahead of before. And I got on my bike and uh, I, I took the lead early. My heart rate was low. Um, and, but right away there were a couple, there were two German guys who passed me. One was a guy named Jürgen Zach and another was a young guy, 23 year old Thomas Hellriegel, 14 years younger than me, or he was 24, 13 years younger than me, excuse me. And, um, he, he passed me so fast. He looked like he was on a motorcycle and I thought, okay, we're 15 miles into a 112 mile bike ride. I cannot let them go. And so I upped my pace, but right away my heart rate started to skyrocket and I thought, you know, stick to your strategy. They're young guys. They don't have the experience you have. You know what it takes to ride strong, but not too strong so that you then have a great marathon at the end of the day. And that was my, that was my true weapon of choice was to run fast. And so I, I let them go and I thought they'll get five minutes on me. You know, I can make that up. Their job was not to stick to my, ideal five-minute strategy, was it? Their job was to put as much time between me and them as they could by the end of the bike ride. <clears throat> when I came off the bike, I was in transition. I knew that the guy who was in the lead, the young guy, Thomas Hellriegel, was way ahead of me, and it was way more than five minutes. I didn't know what the time was. As I was putting on my running shoes, somebody yelled out, he's 13 and a half minutes ahead of you, go catch him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, gee, I just saved 10 seconds. <laughs> I didn't know how I could do it. 13 and a half minute deficit. He was two miles into the marathon before I even started. I had to make up 30 seconds a mile, every single mile of that marathon to just catch him at the finish. And that was still too huge of a chunk for me to wrap my my mind around and so eventually as i started to run i thought let me just see if i can make up an inch or a second every step of this marathon you know that was a small enough chunk 
that I could wrap my brain around it, that I could focus on that and that I could make that my, my mantra, my goal. And so I was running and I was running and I was running. And, uh, when I got to the top of the, of the exit out of the transition area at the top of a, a very long hill, there were, there were three older women who were cheering and they were looking right at me. And, and you know how old women are like, they don't mince words. They tell you exactly what they're thinking. Right. And so as I'm running by them, they're going, go Mark, go Mark, go Mark. Ah, he doesn't look so good. <laughs> and I thought if they said that I must look like, sh I just must look like shit, you know? And that thought sunk in. And about a mile later, I realized I felt so bad. I didn't even know if I could finish the race. And then chaos happened in my brain. And, you know, why are you back here? You didn't need this. You've won five. You shouldn't have come back. You know, Hell Regal, he's 13 years younger than you, 13 and a half minutes ahead. There's no way you can catch that guy. Hey, there's your hotel. Just call it a day. Everybody will understand. You know, if we quit, there is no chance of realizing the dream that we're after. Even if we stay with it, but we kind of give up, there is no chance of realizing the dream we are after. You know, when I went there, I had asked the island for one last great race. And right now, in this moment, it looked like I was having the worst Ironman of my life. 13 and a half minutes down, I feel lousy, I'm ready to quit. I had studied with Grant Secunda for many years now, Don Jose's adopted grandson, and he had he had worked with me to help me to learn skills to quiet my mind, to get myself to be quiet, to trust, to be calm, to give everything I had. And uh, then I and and you know he said, just you never know. Like one moment might might seem impossible, the next moment things might look possible. It's not over until it's over. Keep going. And that thought came back and my mind went quiet. And I realized, yeah, it looks impossible right now, but I need to keep going. And you know what? Because I'm going to keep going, the only way that's worth keeping going is if I give 100% of what I have to give here in this moment and the one after that and the one after that. And I, I realized... Maybe I won't be able to do that. I don't know. But I'm going to get to the finish line because this is my final Ironman. And I got into this sport to cross the finish line. This is my final one. Even if I blow up, I'm going to get to that finish line. And making that commitment to get to the finish line, no matter what, transformed the race. In that moment when I made that commitment to finish, the guy in fourth place, 10 seconds up, up the road in front of me, Greg Welsh, the guy who won, the year that I took off previously, he stopped in the middle of the road. He stretched his back. I passed him making the first pass, moving from fifth to fourth. And suddenly the whole world of opportunity began to open back up and I could see it taking place. Eventually I moved into third. Eventually just past the half marathon point, I moved into second. With eight miles to go, I, told, I was told that I was four minutes behind Thomas Halregal. If you do the math, I'm making up 30 seconds a mile, but I am still only on pace to catch him at the finish line. And that's not a good place to catch a guy who's 13 years younger than you when you're sprinting for a world championship. He would win it. 
I needed something more, but I couldn't, <clears throat> I couldn't find it. And again, my mind went into that space that wasn't helping me out. Oh, hell, Regal, I still can't see the guy. You know, my legs are killing me. I need something else, but I, I can't find it. I, I just don't know. I don't, I don't think I can do it. And then I got my mind to be quiet. Whew. Brandt had also said, you know, the, the big island's alive. It, it's like it's an entity. It will hear you it, when you need help. Just ask for it. You know, and, and you know how that is. Sometimes it's we need help from something or someone, and we're afraid to ask. Partly because it makes us vulnerable, but partly because if we ask and a gift is given, then we have to live what that gift is asking us to do. And if I asked that island for help, that meant that. I needed to give more of what I had and to not hold anything back. But I knew that was what I had to do. And so I called out, I said, hey, Big Island, help me here. I'm gonna give everything I have, even if I come in an inch behind Hell Regal, even if I completely blow up in these eight miles, I'm gonna give 100% of what I have to give, but I need something extra. A mile after that, I made up 40 seconds. The one after that, I made up a little over 50. The one after that, I made up a minute and 15 seconds on the guy who had been leading for over six hours. Finally, at mile 23, I came up behind Thomas Hellriegel. I regrouped, and then I made the final pass of my Ironman career. And I went on to win that sixth and final title against a guy who was incredibly tough in that moment when I was early in the marathon, ready to give up, thinking I'm having the worst marathon of my life. When I look back now, I realize that was the best Ironman that I've ever had because it was so difficult to win. It was so difficult to hold myself together, to keep regrouping so that I didn't give up, to give 100% of what I had, even when that victory seemed completely impossible. Had that race been easier, it would not have been the best Ironman of my career. But because it was so challenging, it was the best Ironman of my career. It pulled more of me up than I ever knew that I had to give. And that's such a, that's a, such, such a gift that life can give us. You know, in, in those moments that are difficult and challenging, we want to quit. We can be cynical and think that life's not working out right. You know, I should be on a different track. Things are should be different than they are. It should be easier than it than it is. It shouldn't take as long as it is to achieve what I'm after. But in the end, I think all of us can look back over every challenge that we've been faced with, and I guarantee you, you'll see that you have made it through every challenge that's come your way in your life. That there's there's gifts and lessons and and fulfillment that come from those that we won't see in the moment. You know, I, I I tell people the, the the greatest victories can never be seen. And those are the victories we have over that lesser part of ourselves that could have easily just given in to the difficulty or the challenge. But somehow we rose above it and we kept going. We kept taking that next step. We gave 100% of what we had to give moment by moment by moment by moment. Those are the greatest victories. No one will ever know 
what it took you to get to this point in your life. But for sure, we can all sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, great job. So when you think in terms of your entire life, sports being a huge part of it, but you're a dad, you're a significant other, you're the child of parents. I like to say the hyphen is the most important punctuation and because it represents the time between our birth and death. Hmm. When you think about your entire life as a human being, what would you want people to know about you? What's important? Boy. Um, just that I am just a human being. I'm not... I'm not this extraordinarily gifted person that, you know, when I was born, the doctor didn't go, wow, world champion. There, <laughs> there he is. You know, I was just another baby that came out and looked like every other little baby, you know, mm. screaming and crying. And, and that my life hasn't always been easy. It, it hasn't always been hard either. You know, I, I've, mm -hmm. I've had a lot of breaks in my life. And I don't want to ever underestimate those, but I've also had a lot of things to overcome, challenges, and that um, I've tried to face each of those with um, with a certain level of grace. You know, right now I'm I'm 65, and and I can feel like once again my life is ready to be restructured in a certain in some way that I still don't know what it, what that is. And it might just be simply that at 65, you know, physically, things are a little different than they were at 35, obviously. Um, you know, at 65, people look at you differently than they did when you're 35, which usually mostly is good. But um, the, I, I've always just tried to look at my life as a as a continuum and a journey and that along the way hopefully hopefully i've been doing things that um just set up good energy for the world you know even if it's nothing that anybody else sees like you know you make your bed in the morning that sets up good energy nobody will see that right except for your partner or your mm. you know and just those those simple little things you know one of the one of the one quote that i heard a number of years ago that I can't continually think about and see a certain level of truth with it is that the quote was how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm. And it's sort of like, yeah, you can't, you know, if, if I'm sloppy in one area that spills over into other areas, not that I need to be a perfectionist in any one of them and not that I'm going to be a world champion in everything. I'm not a world champion vacuumer. I'm not a world champion, you know, toilet bowl cleaner or whatever, you know, whatever it is, but mm. it's not do too the, late. Do every, yeah. Do it, do everything <laughs> the best that you can and be proud and be proud of it. Mm. And, and I, you know, I, I ask myself, what if, what if everything was stripped away from me? What, what would be something that would just give me a sense like, Hey, life is good. You know, because I'm sure you've had this experience. You know, you, you see people that clearly on a 
let's say a financial level, they're less fortunate than you, or maybe on a mental level, they're less fortunate. You know, somebody who's homeless living on the street or somebody who's muttering to themselves and, and, you know, clearly they've had some kind of, you know, emotional or mental instability going on and, you know, they'll never be a world champion. They'll, they'll never, never, never be able to say, I did this great thing that other people know about that a lot of other people might know about. So where does their life value and fulfillment come from? And I asked myself, if I was in that position, where would it come from? And ultimately, I, I think it's, I think it's just being able to share something of beauty and joy with other others that have meaning to you. And, and here's an example. And this happened to me actually this morning. I woke up early, and uh, there was this incredible sunrise that was taking place. And so I, I, I went down to the ocean. I live right like up two blocks from the ocean here in Santa Cruz. And I just sat on a bench along the cliff and I just watched this sunrise evolve and, and the colors go from pink to like brilliant orange and these deep reds. And, and I took some photos of it and I thought, you know, when, when the sun, when this sunrise is over, it's going to turn into this gray colorless sky. And maybe the, the peak of my day has just happened and, and the best sort of dopamine dose that I'm going to get today is watching these colors and the rest of the day is just going to be like dredging through stuff that I'm maybe I'm not so excited about and like ooh like the best part of the day is already gone and it's only like 6:48 you know and and I and I'm thinking okay that's like okay where's the glass half full mm. and and so then I thought well let's see well the glass half full could be that hey you didn't have to wait till the end of the day to have some amazing moment where you just went, wow, life is life is so cool. You got that as first thing out of the gate. That's kind of cool. But it still didn't, it didn't gel. Like, you know, what about the gray and all that that's coming later? And then I, th there's a few people in my life that I'm really close with and that I communicate with a lot. And so I text there, there I texted each one of them this photo of the sunrise. And in sharing that moment that I experienced with those people that had have meaning for me that I love and care for, I just had this sense of like, wow, I've, I've anchored that amazing feeling into the entire day. My entire day is blessed now because I've shared something that was really cool for me. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that it's going to can at least bring a little smile to, to those other folks. And so, Ultimately, isn't it the things that we do that we share with others that are the most sort of meaningful and impactful things? For me, if you stripped everything away, if I didn't have my house and anything, um, it's connection. Even with all those things, it's connection to another person, being of service to my fellow human beings in some way. Yeah. Help yeah. another. That's the only way I really get the dopamine hit that you talk about is um, I call it love. I don't know. Yeah. I need connection. I need to be of service to another person because <clears throat> otherwise I'm just trying to serve myself and I don't really need anything or want anything anymore. It's just yeah. emptiness and chasing wrong things and 
I'd rather be of service. Absolutely. And sometimes I do change, chase wrong things. And <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? It's not making me any happier. But then mm -hmm. again, I do. I still love the action of working and, and uh, trying to build something too, but it's not, it gets, it's not meaning in the way that you're talking about it. It, Great. it can be, it can be part of it. You know, obviously I'm helping people with things they need help with, but um, these kinds of conversations, to me, this is a contribution. You made a contribution into my life and anyone who's listening is going to hear this. And, and uh, lots of these people that will listen have no idea what you're about or who you are, really, other than you won the Ironman. But mm. the way that you think and feel and have expressed yourself is going to make an impression on people who didn't really know much about you. And mm. then I feel like I'm doing something, too, by creating the platform. And, and uh, I... To be clear, I feel like you're doing me a big favor. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, but I think no, together, like it's a contribution. I think it's great. And I've really enjoyed our friendship. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time we met in New York City, you had given a speech and I walked up to you after and, and it was me and another person. And we said hello and more or less goodbye. And then I said, do you have plans for lunch? And you said, no, I don't. And it was just one of those things where I could have, I was afraid that you would say, yeah, buzz off, kid. But then we had lunch <laughs> and then we've had this friendship for, you know, a long time. I don't know. It's probably yeah. pushing 30 years, right? Yeah. And then, uh, and then you made such a huge, like, maybe unwittingly, but we had dinner that night um, and I was drinking wine and I said, I think I, do you think I could do an Ironman? And and you said anyone can do an Ironman if they do the work. Mm. And then you pointed to the wine and you said, but that won't help. <laughs> so it was like a sign of things to come. So I no longer drink wine, as you know. But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, just I think you've created, you've made so many contributions in so many ways into so many lives. I just, including mine, thank you. Mm. Um, I just feel like. It was a great conversation. This is much more than I usually talk, by the way. On, uh, but I feel like I know you so well, reasonably well over the years. And yeah, uh, I just a, wanted we have to... a long, yeah, we have a long history. You've heard my story many times, and yeah, it's uh, great. Never sure, gets old. I really, yeah, I really appreciate you um, having me on and and providing this platform to have conversations with. Super interesting people. Not that I'm an interesting yeah. person, but you oh know. yeah, you're fascinating. That's part of the criteria. It's a very high bar. All right. Is there anything you might like to say or ask me before we wrap up? No, I think we uh, we covered a lot of, of ground here. You know, there's you could go on about philosophies of life and different stories. Um, I think you know the main the main thing obviously is just continuing on with those things that have have meaning and feel like they have purpose and you know I I um I, I going back to that sunrise story it reminded me of a year when I was competing where I did an Olympic distance race in Baltimore and I won the race I went by myself after the race I called 
all of my key people and I could not get any of them on the phone. This was before cell phones and message machines and stuff. And it felt like an empty victory. Like I can't, I'm not able to share this with anybody. And that was, that was a real moment of an aha moment. Like life really is about sharing stuff with those people that you have, that you feel close with. Mm. Excuse me. And it also got me thinking about folks who maybe don't, you know, they're lonely. They don't have a social network. They don't have an avenue to sort of share things of purpose or meaning or to, to be there, to be support for someone who might be struggling with something. And, and I can really see how community is, is such a, such an important aspect to, to emotional health, to fulfillment in life, to, to living long and to just a lot of times just having a good time, hanging out, chatting like we're doing mm-hmm. today. In an earlier conversation today, um, <clears throat> I was talking to someone about ostracism, which is like the cruelest fate to suffer. Right, you're banished from your community, mm. and uh, the Athenians did it to Socrates, and he drank the hemlock mm. rather than try to make a new com- community somewhere else. Mm. And so, to your point, connection, feeling of belonging, helping other people to feel like they belong, and like I say, being of service to my fellow human beings is the that's the dopamine. It doesn't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. But thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to hearing, see, seeing you again soon. Sounds great. Have a great Thanks, afternoon. Pat. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you enjoy the most fascinating podcast in the world, please follow on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, and follow on Apple Podcasts.